I should say, as I always do, I haven't got any printed notes, but I will send some to you on MCC. And I'll send the PowerPoint as well so you can look at that if you want to. Um, Martin Luther, the great German reformer, he said this of the prophets. They have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. Now, is that anybody's experience here, right? Because the prophets can be perplexing. Um, I used to have to teach uh, Shakespeare uh, to Year 9 English students, and I had never studied Shakespeare since I'd left school, uh, but I found after a while that there's a kind of a rhythm that you get into as you read Shakespeare that if you just keep at it, I didn't have to look at the, uh, the notes on the side of the page quite as often. And when you read the prophets often enough, they do start to give up their secrets once you get some of the techniques right for reading them. Anyway, I think I might have shown you some of this before, but I'm going to bore you with it again. Um, to get an understanding of the prophets, it helps to understand a little bit of Israelite history. So the prophets are God's spokespeople. They were speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Yahweh's Israel's God. And so this is a bit of an outline of Israelite history. So we're talking about from, from Abraham onwards. Abraham is the father of Israel. Um, God chose Abraham. We read about him in Genesis 12, God's choice of Abraham. But uh, he enters the picture around about 2000 BC. So there's 2,000 years before Christ. We're now a bit over 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus was born. The next big event in the Bible storyline was uh, that Israel found itself in Egypt. So they were taken to Egypt where they served as slaves for 400 or so years. So the next big event, and this happened in the 15th century BC, was the Exodus, where God rescued his people out of Egypt. Now, the Exodus is the Old Testament's model of salvation. So when, when people in the Old Testament talk about being saved, what they're thinking about is being saved from, exit, from, from slavery in Egypt. It was the, that was the great event in the past. Um, so that was about 1500 BC, or, or in the 15th century BC. They went 40 years in the wilderness and then they had to conquer the land that they went into. And then you get the phase of the judges and the kings. So God raised up judges to judge Israel. That doesn't mean what we think judging means. It, it, it doesn't mean they went to court, but uh, they were the leaders of God's people. But then the kingdom phase, Saul was the first king, David was the second king, Solomon was the third king. Each of them reigned several decades David was about 40 years, I think Saul was about 40 years, David was about 40 years, Solomon um, about 40 years too. So they, they all reigned for a fair length of time. And on the chart you can see the dotted line, that's about the, the, the kingship phase. Well, things took a turn for the worse after King Solomon. And so as you read the Old Testament, you need to get your head around this. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a young man who asked advice from the old men who advised Solomon, how should I rule my people? And they said, rule them gently. He asked the young men and they said, rule them harshly. And so he decided to take the advice of the young men and the northern tribes decided, we're out of here. Judah always seems to get the better share of things. So the northern tribes, because the kings came from the tribe of Judah, the northern tribes split away and from that point on they became known as Israel. 
Now, this is where it gets tricky, and for a long time I couldn't make head or tail of this. But up until this point, the whole 12 tribal system is called Israel. But after the kingdom split, it's only the 10 northern tribes that are known as Israel. And the southern tribe of Judah, which incorporated Benjamin as well, they became known as Judah. So you've got Israel, you've got Judah. Right, uh, the Israelite kingdom independent of the kingship that was from Jerusalem, it lasted a couple of hundred years. And then the Assyrians, they were the dominant world power of that era, the Assyrians came in and invaded them, as God had promised they would, uh, and they captured Samaria and the, the territory of the northern tribes. And the people from the northern tribes of Israel were incorporated into the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrians had a policy. They didn't deport most of the people. What they did was they brought their people into the land and they made them intermarry. And they thought that by intermarrying with the local population, it would dilute the worship of the local populations and stop them worshipping their local god. And they would prefer the worship of the Assyrian gods. Right. So that's how they did it. So this is what it looks like. Um, there's the, they're the 12 tribal allotments of Israel. After they came out from, the prom- from Egypt into the Promised Land, each of the tribes was given their own uh, area. You can see the large tribal area of Judah. Judah was already a strong tribe by then. The little tri- uh, Simeon was incorporated, and you've got little Benjamin there. That incorporated itself into Judah. But the kingdom split um, in 930 BC, and from then on you had Israel to the north, you had Judah to the south. And you can see the foreign nations around about Syria and Moab. Philistia over here, they never, did, they never did conquer the Philistines. They never did get rid of them and they proved to be a thorn in the side uh, from then on. So Assyria comes in and Samaria was destroyed, destroyed in 722 BC. Um, much of the population was deported but they were replaced by Assyrians who did this inter, intermarriage thing. Uh, and Israel disappears from world history at that point, uh, except if you believe in British Israelites. That, but we won't. <laughs> I shouldn't even have said that. There are some people who think the English are descended from the ten lost tribes. So a friend of mine who pastored a church where that theory was alive and active told me that a woman got up to pray one day and she said, "I'm twice blessed. I'm English and I'm a Christian." Uh, well, I so am I. So uh, anyway. The ten tribes just disappeared. Um, so that's what the Assyrian Empire looked like. You can see that it covered a large span of what we would now call the Middle East, uh, all the way from Iraq through Iran uh, and all the way down to Egypt and up into what we would now call Turkey. It was ruled by the Assyrians. Uh, and, of course, they threatened Jerusalem, and you can read about that in the Old Testament too. So anyway, um, the southern tribe of Judah lasted longer Uh, the kingship phase of Judah lasted longer than the Assyrians um, because they were the kings in the line of David and for the sake of God's loyalty to David he persisted with them longer Um, Babylon was the world power uh, and they succeeded the Assyrians so the Assyrians and the Babylonians battled it out and the Babylonians took over as the top civilization at that time well eventually Judah was exiled to Babylon in 586 BC uh, because they persisted in being idolatrous and God had promised them that if they worshipped the gods of the nations then they'd 
be conquered by, the, uh, by those nations. And so Judah was taken in, uh, in, into exile in Babylon. Uh, so if you know the story of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, it all took place in Babylon because they were Jewish exiles. In fact, do you know why we call them Jews? It comes from Judah because that's all that was left of them. Israel had disappeared. Why were the Jews called Jews? Because it's short for Judah, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, I don't know the answer. Yeah. So why... Hang on. Uh, language changes. It's just a corruption. Do you know why we call the modern part of that part of the world Palestine? Because that's what the Romans... That's how the Romans said Philistine. So that was the Roman name for it. It's just a corruption of the word Philistine. Spellings and things change over the years. And, and so... Uh, yeah, in in German, like if you were a Jew at the time of the Nazi Party, your badge said Juden, J-U-D-E-N. So I don't know why we spell it J-E-W, but but you can find it in the Bible. But it's only after the exile to Babylon that they're called Jews. Um, up until then, they've been Hebrews or Israel. Uh, so we wouldn't call Abraham a Jew because he was pre-Judaic. Um, he was of the same race, but, but Jews are descendants of the tribe of Judah. Yeah, and Judah was the tribe that the kings were supposed to come from. Anyway, um, so Esther, the book of Esther, takes place in the 5th century and she was one of the exiles in, per- in, in, in Babylon, but by then the Babylonians had been overtaken by the Persians. So you've... The ancient world, there was just different cultures that were sort of becoming more or less supreme. Um, and so the Assyrians were the top dogs, the Babylonians took over from them, then the Persians took over from the Babylonians. Who took over from the Persians? The Greeks, right? Um, and it's because of the Persians and the Greeks going to war that we have the marathon, because one of the big battles in, in the war between the Persians and the Greeks was fought on the plain of Marathon, which is a location in Greece, and Phidippides was a Greek runner, and he ran all the way from Marathon to Athens to tell them the news that the, the Greeks had won um, and uh, dropped dead. So that's why we have... So the distance in the Marathon is the distance from Marathon to Athens. Uh, so the, the Persians were succeeded by the Greeks and the Greeks were succeeded by the Romans. Um, so that's how world history works. At the moment, we'd say the world is dominated by America. Um, that we've been living through the American century. Who knows what will happen next? But kingdoms come, king, kingdoms go. Nations rise, nations fall. Nothing's permanent. Uh, the Romans lasted a long time, but um, nothing stays forever. So anyway, Ezra uh, was part of the return from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he was charged with getting the rebuilding of the temple started. Nehemiah came back about 70 years after Ezra and he was tasked with getting the walls of Jerusalem rebuilt. And so uh, there, there's some prominent historical things. Now, all of that history from, from there to there is covered by First and Second, First Samuel to Second Chronicles. So if you want to read the history of Israel, those books are the ones to do it. So you can read... First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. That's where the history uh, is found. The prophets that we have in our Bibles, which come after the after the 
poetic books, the Psalms and Wisdom, the prophets intersect. Their, their setting is the same time as the latter part of Israel's history. Now, this is something that I took years to get my head round. Right, so because I read a book from left to right, and so I read it from from there to there, and I think, oh, well, these things must be a lot later. But in fact, they're coincidental with a lot of the stuff that we read that's history. And so, if you want to know the background to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, then you've got to find it in the history books, which is earlier on. Does that make sense? So you've got to do a little bit of putting together. Right. So after the split between Israel and Judah eventually in 586 the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem and they took all of the or most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem they they took back into Babylon as exiles so Israel Israelite history has two great peaks the exodus from Egypt the exile to Babylon that's what the Babylonian empire looked like it was even bigger and vaster than the uh, the Assyrian um but Babylon fell to Cyrus of Persia, who again, who, we've heard about him in the book of Isaiah, uh, but he was the Persian emperor. And in 539 BC, um, uh, Persia took over from, uh, from the Babylonians. And you can read about that, that sudden takeover in Daniel chapter 5. The handwriting on the wall, you know the story of the hand. You know, uh, tonight your kingdom will be required of you. It was the Persians at the gates, and they took over, as they took over Babylon. So that's what the Persian Empire looked like. It was vast as well. Uh, righto. Now we've talked about this before, but it's it's worth thinking about. The Bible's like a library. Um, the first five books we call the books of the law, or the the Torah or the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, that's Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then you get the history books, which is Joshua to Esther. And then um, we have the Psalms and the wisdom books. And then we get the books of the prophets. Now, the prophets are divided into what we call the major and the minor prophets. Have you heard that classification? But there's nothing minor about the minor prophets. They're not less in importance, they're just smaller. Right? So... I've forgotten who it was that gave them that title, but minor just simply means smaller. But there's a logic to the way that the prophets are arranged. Um, now, the prof- if, if we think about these first two divisions of books, uh, we get the, the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis, about 2,000. We get the kingship phase, about 1,000. We get the split of the kingdom. And then we get the... the, uh, the extermination of Israel effectively and then we get the return from exile in Judah uh, and the return happened about 400 BC so Bible history as it's recorded in the Old Testament finishes at about 400 BC and there's the Bible doesn't contain any historical material until the Lord Jesus Uh, now these this is the bit that stumped me the prophets need to be read in line with the last phase of Israelite history. And so if, if you take that as a bit of a timeline there, the, the period three, 760 to 460 BC, before Christ, that's the era into which the prophets were working and writing. Uh, so it's the last phase of bi- biblical history. There's three kinds of prophets. Those who prophesied before the Babylonian exile, so they're called pre-exilic prophets, there's the exilic prophets who prophesied while the exile was in progress. 
and there's the post-exilic prophets who prophesied after they'd come back from Babylon and were back in Jerusalem. So three phases of prophetic activity, before the exile, during the exile, after the exile. And so they're addressing different situations. Um, Well, if we look at that period more closely, uh, years BC, 700 down to 400, uh, Amos was the first of the writing prophets, uh, probably about 760 BC. Now, there's a bit of a, a code here. The pale blue squares are, people, are the prophets who wrote to the northern tribes of Israel because some addressed their writing to the north and some to the south. Uh, and so you've got Hosea, uh, Micah, uh, and then Isaiah, who wrote about 740. So Isaiah is first in the collection, but he wasn't the first prophet to write. And so we need to get our heads around that as well. So the logic is this. Isaiah wrote a really long book and he was the earliest prophet to write a long book so we put him at the beginning because he'll help us understand the rest of the prophets. But he wasn't the first writing prophet. The first prophet whose writings we do have is Amos. right? Jonah, Hosea, Micah. Micah was roughly a con- or very close to a contemporary of Isaiah. Um, then there's Nahum and then Zephaniah and Habakkuk. And then there's Jeremiah, who had a big book. Now, Jeremiah's is actually the longest non-psalm book in the Bible, but Isaiah's got more chapters. There's more words in Jeremiah, but Isaiah's got more chapters. Then there's Daniel, and there's Ezekiel, there's Obadiah, who wrote before the fall of Jerusalem, Jerusalem falls. There's the exile and return. Then Haggai and Zechariah, and then Malachi. They bring up the rear. So those last three... Uh, like the the prophets after the exile. So you've got pre-exile, you've got exile, and you've got after the exile. And we don't know where Joel fits. Um, There's there's nothing to indicate a datable historical event with Joel, so we don't know where he fits. Is he early, is he late? It's just impossible to say. Uh, Righto, so that's the order of the, the prophets as we have them in the Bible. When we talk about the canon, we mean the fixed arrangement of something. So the canonical order goes through from Isaiah through to Malachi. Um, I'd never memorised the order of these until I was in my 20s. I was at church one day and somebody called for a reading out of probably Habakkuk and I thought, I know it's in here somewhere. I kept flicking backwards and forwards and I thought, this is ridiculous. So that week I learnt the order of the Old Testament. Um, Mr Adamus made me learn the New Testament when I was in grade two and I got a minty for my labours. Um, uh, and that was all it took to bribe a boy back in those days. But uh, but I decided after that I'm going to commit the Old Testament to memory. And it was the prophets that stumped me because some of the names down the end. But some of these little, the minor prophets, they're very short, so you can flick over them. I actually think it's a good discipline to know where they are. So I just made myself memorise them and I, I recommend it. Um, one of these days you'll meet Zephaniah and he'll ask how you enjoyed his book um, and it would be embarrassing to say well no I got around to read it, couldn't actually find it um, so now within the prophets the last lot Hosea down to Malachi known as the book of the twelve now the, this is where the logic of the arrangement comes now, you staying with me Isaiah was an early prophet who wrote a big book that helps us to understand the rest. So he goes at the beginning. Jeremiah wrote a big book and he was after Isaiah, so he comes second. Lamentations 
may have been written by Jeremiah. We're not entirely sure. Lots of people think it is. A lot of people say it's not. It doesn't really matter. But it describes what Jerusalem was like after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so it looks like the logical thing to, to drop in after the prophecy of Jeremiah. Then you've got Ezekiel who was prophesying while the exile was on. So he writes as someone in Babylon. Then you've got Daniel, which in the Jewish scriptures wasn't included amongst the prophets. It was included in what they called the writings. But Daniel and his friends were people in Babylon. But then we, we come to a stop. We go back to the little prophets. And now we go back to Hosea, who prophesied before Isaiah. But because he's one of the short ones, he goes at the head of the collection of the Book of Twelve. Now, the book of 12 is arranged. In fact, if you added up all the words in Hosea to Malachi, they're roughly the equivalent of one major prophet. But there's a logic to the way that the, uh, the, the, the minor prophets are arranged. So you've got Israel in the north, um, sometimes called Ephraim. Um, you've got Judah in the south. These are the prophets who prophesied to Israel. Amos, Jonah, Hosea, then Micah. Uh, and Isaiah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah in the south, Daniel, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So you can see that not many prophets um, prophesied to the to, to Israel because Israel disappeared and there's nothing left to say. They've gone. So that's where the the, prophet, the prophetic books fit in in terms of the the, the overlap between them and the history books. Um, as I say, I've got to send all this out to you so I don't feel you have to memorise it. Right. Isaiah, Jeremiah and all the way through to Malachi were not the only prophets in the Bible. So all of these people here, whose name, many of whom you, you recognise their names, they're all indicated as being prophets. Right. So Abraham is called a prophet in Genesis 20. Moses is called a prophet in Exodus 7. Uh, Samuel's called a prophet. Nathan's called a prophet. And then you get Elijah and Elisha, who definitely are prophets, but they didn't write anything that we know of. So what we talk about when we're coming to Isaiah and all the rest of them, we're talking about the prophets who who wrote their stuff down. They're writing prophets. Got that? So it's not that Elijah and Elisha didn't have important things to do, but when we're talking about the prophets, we're talking about the collection of the people that actually wrote their sermons or their, their teaching down. And so they begin in about the 8th century B.C., um, Israel and Judah had been divided and they were both declining in influence and, and prosperity um, and the problem was covenant unfaithfulness. God had told his people what he required of them they had ignored it and so God raised up prophets to tell them to come back and live his way uh, they'd been tempted by idolatry and um, by turning their back on God they'd begun to live lives that were not characterised by justice uh, and they had put too high a price on wealth and prosperity, even at the expense of the poor. And so God raised up prophets to talk to his people and say, come back from your wickedness, because if you don't, if you don't keep your part of the covenant bargain, I will impose the covenant penalties. So when you read books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God makes a covenant with his people. It's a binding agreement. And his part of it was, I will bless you, and their part of it was, we will obey you. But all covenants had penalty clauses. And so the penalty was, if you disobey, you'll be conquered. 
and you'll be taken out of the land I gave you. And so the life of Israel depended on the people actually keeping God's law. And so because God can't break a covenant, the only risk to the covenant came from the human side. And so he called the prophets to preach to people who didn't want to hear. Um, so they're covenant spokesmen. That's, that's as good a way of defining a prophet as it's possible to get. What they did was reminded the people of their, uh, what they'd undertaken to do. Um, these were God's people rescued from slavery, given the law to live with, uh, and they, all they had to do was keep the law and they would have kept the land. But these, the, the prophets were covenant spokesmen. Now, at the very end of Second Chronicles, um, we read this, Second Chronicles 36, 14 to 16. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. In other words, the temple in Jerusalem. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So that there is a definition of what the prophets had to do the situation that they were speaking to and to understand the job that Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Malachi, the whole lot, that's what they were up against. Wicked people who didn't want to be rebuked and yet they'd been sent by God to call people back to live in God's way. So that's a description of the whole thing. So true prophecy, uh, because it was possible to be a false prophet and the test for a false prophet was given in Deuteronomy chapter 17. But true prophecy... Isaiah chapter 30. Now, go write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Here's a question. Were the prophets popular? Why not? Yeah. They said things that people didn't want to hear. Is good preaching popular? No. Yeah, but see the thing is I'm a sinner and I don't like my I don't like my heart being revealed. But I don't suppose I'm any different from most of us, right? But the thing is, Isaiah had to go to people that didn't want to hear because they were happy with their injustice, they were happy with their idolatry, they were happy with their sexual perversion. And so the job of a prophet was to go with God's word to people who were ungrateful and unwilling, which is a tough job. Now these days I often hear people say, I've got a word of prophecy for you, Steve. I've had several people prophesy over me over the years. It's always been something nice. Oh, I think the Lord's got great plans for you, Steve. I think he's going to get your album to the top of the charts. No one's ever said that, but I mean, that's the kind of prophecy I'd like. Um, right? The prophets had to go with difficult things. They, they weren't there to say nice things to people. In fact, that's what they would have liked. Don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Speak no more 
about the Holy One of Israel because living for Yahweh is demanding. It demands everything you've got and they didn't want to give that because they liked the sensual delights of the worship of the, the gods of the nations. So if someone comes to you with a word of prophecy that says you're going to end up with 10 show bags at the show and you won't have to pay, don't listen to them because that's not how God operates. God wants to bring his people back to living the right way. Um, Jeremiah chapter 5 an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction my people love to have it so so people prefer dud prophecy that's been happening for centuries people want smooth things they want illusions but this is Yahweh speaking through his servant Jeremiah an appalling thing has happened and the people love it right now, what, this is my favourite one, Micah 2. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So, more wine, more beer, right? Bring it on, right? I'm sure we'd get a crowd if we put on a keg, right? If we said free chops and sausages in a keg every Sunday, we'd get a few, right? That's what the, prophet, that's what the people of Micah's time wanted. They wanted beer and wine and strong drink, right? And God says to them, yep, that's just the sort of prophet you'd like, wouldn't you? But that's not what they need. So Jeremiah asked the question, what will you do when the end comes? So a bit about Isaiah. Um, We've been thinking about him a bit, I hope. Um, But the date of his prophetic activity was 740 to 687 BC. So he had had quite a long career, about 53 years. Um, he focused on Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, he's the first in collection, so he guides the reading of all of the books. His emphases were Yahweh's holiness and his majesty and his compassion and his mercy. So yes, he's holy, he's majestic, but he's also compassionate and merciful for those who'll return and walk his way. He's very strong on Israel or Zion's role in Yahweh's plans for the world. Um, One of his major themes, as we've seen, is the the suffering servant or redeemer. But the next section of Isaiah, which we're going to preach through next year, talks about God's glorious future. So Isaiah is like the whole Bible in miniature. There's a lot about creation that goes all the way through to the end. Um, Sometimes it's called the fifth gospel because so much of what's revealed in Jesus uh, is predicted uh, in Isaiah. Um, So chapters 1 to 39, Jerusalem during the period of the Assyrian threat. Chapters 40 to 66, uh, Babylon's the background and Israel's future is tied to a second exodus which will be initiated by this suffering servant that we've been speaking about. Um, Well, Jeremiah, he was later and he was writing immediately before the exile began um, and he was emphasising the fact that the warnings in Deuteronomy had to be taken seriously. So God had warned people, if you disobey, you'll be invaded, you'll be conquered, you'll be exiled. He'd warned them. They should have known better. But being sinners, it didn't trouble them. And so Jeremiah was warning them, if you don't straighten up and fly right, things are going to change. So this is the nub of the problem in Jeremiah. Have a look at this. Jeremiah 6.16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look, ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it, and find rest for your soul. Sounds good, doesn't it? You could almost make that into a bumper sticker. Want rest for your soul? Find the old ways. But this is the answer from the people. But they said, we will not walk in it. So the ancient paths are the law. 
In other words, get back to listening to and doing what God has always said you should do. But they said, we don't want to. And so Isaiah, Jeremiah, the whole lot of them were prophesying to a rebellious people. But one of the emphases of Jeremiah is that God won't abandon his people, but he will honour the covenant. So in other words, how can can God put up with rebellious people? Um, How can people live in a way that pleases God? Well, the answer is he's going to make a new covenant because the first covenant became inadequate. Now, this is an interesting little exercise to do. Um, I underline things in my Bible just so I can, and I write notes in the margin so I can find other bits that relate to it. So I've made a little trail in my Bible from Deuteronomy 10. Now, Deuteronomy is the law. These are the things that Israel had to do. So they were instructed to circumcise every male. But in Deuteronomy 10, Moses told the people, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Now think about that for a moment. Does that strike anybody as an unusual thing to require? Circumcising the foreskin of your heart is impossible. They didn't have the surgical tools to be able to do it back in those days, did they? But what would happen if an early Israelite tried to circumcise a heart? They'd kill the person, wouldn't they? So that's got to be something with a spiritual application. So don't think of the law as something that's only physical. You could do all of the right stuff, you could make all the sacrifices, you could turn up at the temple, you could do all your tithing and be outside of God's family. What God really wants is hearts. So Deuteronomy 10, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Deuteronomy 30, the Lord will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Ah, that's how it's done. So as far back as Moses and the law, God's looking ahead to a time when he's going to do an operation on people's hearts which must be spiritual because this can't be literal, can it? So um, the result of that was going to be so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is starting to get into born-again territory. How do, we be, how do we become God's people? We have to be transformed from the heart. And so that's what God has always required. He spells it out in Deuteronomy. But you get to Jeremiah 4, circumcise that yourselves therefore to the Lord, remove the foreskins of your heart. Jeremiah is saying, do what God said to do in Deuteronomy, what you should always have been doing. Jeremiah is a covenant spokesman. He's reminding people of what they already knew that they'd neglected and had disobeyed. That's what prophets do. But what about the new covenant? Well, this is it. Now look at it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now this is before the exile. So God's looking ahead to his people being punished 
been taken to Babylon, but he knows that one day in the future that he will still have a people for his name who will return to him in faith. So he says, I'm making a new covenant. And what's the new covenant? It's a covenant of the heart. So what the old covenant required, circumcised the foreskin of your heart, has to be done by God. And so that's what the prophets were doing, reminding people of what they should have been doing and telling them that God was going to restore them. So Jeremiah preached uh, to Judah for at least 40 years and no one listened and they went into exile. What a job description. Imagine... Look, if the elders had rung me and said, Steve, we want you to come to Mafra and they're going to hate you and no one will listen. It would be an enticing job, wouldn't it? Actually, a friend of mine did ring me once. Um, he said, we're looking for a pastor. And I said, oh, yeah? And he said, but I must warn you, we tend to eat our own. And I thought, Ripper, where do I sign on? Uh, but Jeremiah did it for 40 years. That's a long time to be ignored. But he, he prophesied from when change was still possible until the exile of Babylon. I don't know, um, I sometimes think about this because when we read biblical history, everything seems to be compressed. It can cover a long period of time in two pages. But 40 years. We haven't had a prime minister that's lasted 40 years in Australia. We, you know, we, we change them over. 40 years is a long stretch of history to be ignored, but they had the opportunity to repent and change and they didn't. And so God eventually said, well, I've promised you exile. If that's what you want, that's what you'll get. So Lamentations, the third in the collection of the prophets, is a short book, but as I say, it's connected to Jeremiah. It's five laments or sad songs about the fall of Jerusalem. And some of the most devastating literature in the Bible is in Lamentations. Um, If you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, and his descriptions of what actually happened when when, when Jerusalem was captured... The descriptions are horrific. What actually took place, they were just horrific. Um, And so what's expressed in Lamentations is deep grief and dismay over the destruction of the city where Yahweh said, I will put my name. Um, But there is a glimmer of hope right in the middle because people are reminded of Yahweh's faithfulness. Ezekiel, he was an exilic era prophet. Um, He recorded some extraordinary visions he joined the exiles in Babylon uh, and prophesied from, from Babylon and he prophesied before Jerusalem had been destroyed um, but he said it's inevitable, it, it's going to happen. Um, and so he, he prophesied that Yahweh would leave Jerusalem, he would leave the temple, uh, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple in chapter 11 But Ezekiel's emphasis is that Yahweh is in fact the Lord of all the nations, not just Israel, not just Judah, but in fact all the nations, even Babylon. And so Ezekiel looks ahead to a day when Yahweh is going to restore the land, pour out his spirit and rebuild the temple. Uh, Then you get Daniel who prophesied in in Babylon during the, the, uh, the exile. Um, again, a strong emphasis on Yahweh being sovereign over all the nations, but God cares for his exiled people. Uh, but then he has this extraordinary series of visions uh, where he describes human history in terms of beastly rulers. And uh, some of what he talks about is contemporary, some of it is fulfilled in Jesus, and some of it is way off to the end. But well, you get to the Book of the Twelve, 
um, the minor or shorter prophets. Um, the first six alternate between Israel and Judah. So Hosea prophesied to Israel, then Joel, then Amos to Israel, Obadiah to Judah, Jonah to Israel. So there's the logic of the first six books of the minor prophets. Um, Israel, Judah, Israel, Judah. Um, there is a sequence of themes in through the, the book of the Twelve. And so Joel, one of the very early prophets, he talks about the day of the Lord. What, what's the day of the Lord? The day of Yahweh. It's the last day. It's judgment. It's the day of reckoning. But along the way, the prophets can also talk about... There's, there's some minor days. There's sort of days of the Lord along the way, but there is a last day. Uh, and so Joel introduces the idea of the last day, but Amos develops it. Um, Hosea and Amos prophesied in the 8th century um, and denounced the, the wickedness of their day. Uh, Jonah preached to Nineveh, uh, which was the capital of Assyria, so the dominant world power. He was pretty reluctant, as we know. Micah, who was at the same time as Isaiah, he rebuked Judah for very much the same sorts of sins as Isaiah was pointing out. Then you get the 7th century prophets, where Assyria is on the way down and Babylon's on the way up. So you get Zephaniah, who denounces Judah's worship of other gods, and he warns of judgment. But he does look ahead to God renewing things beyond judgment. Nahum announced the end of Assyria to show that God was in control of everything, even the foreign nations. Habakkuk asked big questions about God's justice in the days leading up to Babylon overcoming Jerusalem. Um, But then in the end he affirms that God is faithful. But he had some serious questions. He wanted to know, was God actually being fair? Um, but the 6th century prophets uh, wrote in the shadow of the Babylonian invasion. So Obadiah witnessed the terrors of Babylon. Um, he, he was an eyewitness of it, just a little one-chapter book. Then you get Haggai and Zechariah, who were amongst those who were allowed to return to Jerusalem from Persia. And they participated in the building of the temple. And they had to stir the people up. They've come out of Jerusalem, out of Babylon, back to Jerusalem, but they don't really want to get about and doing anything. So Zechariah has to try to prompt the people to to, to fire up and, and become obedient. Um, the problem with Israel and, and Judah was that they just didn't change their ways. So Malachi, the last book in the collection, he's lamenting the fact that the very sins that got Israel into trouble all those years ago they're back even after they've been in Babylon and they've come back and they're intermarrying with the people of the other uh, nations around about them the priests have failed to teach God's word uh, there's marital infidelity and so Malachi looks ahead to a time when God's going to send a new Elijah and, an, and the Messiah and so the prophets were saying unpopular things to ungrateful people um, but that's the logic of it the, the major prophets virtually in sequence the minor prophets in sequence pretty much but they're just the shorter ones and so there's the collection of the 12 well back to the theme of true prophecy I, I reckon most of us here have probably heard Jer- Jeremiah 29 verse 11 it turns up frequently in polls of favourite favorite Bible verses um, there was a year that the Cairo Christian school kids had this written on their their year 12 rugby top so do you know this one for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope do you know that one 
Sounds good, doesn't it? Right? Again, it's bumper sticker length. You can, you can print that up, put it on tea towels. The trouble with that verse is it's usually wrenched out of context. Right? So that makes it sound like God just wants to bless your socks off. Right? He wants you to have a great day every day. Right? I know the plans I have for you. Right? So some people will take that verse and make it sound like a recipe for a life of privilege and ease. And it's not. Those words come right in the middle of a passage where God's warning his people who have had 40 years of preaching to repent that he's going to punish them. But he's not finished with them if they'll turn back. So look at the whole thing, Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill for you my promise and bring you back to this place. Now this is before it's happened. But but Jeremiah has to announce on God's behalf, on Yahweh's behalf, that the prophets that they like have been misleading them. But this is the true prophecy you're actually going to be taken exile for 70 years. Now, 70 years is a long time, time, for, time enough for the older ones to die and to miss out. But Yahweh hasn't finished, so he says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortune and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So what is God's plan, his good plan for his people? To punish them. Because they deserve it. And his purpose can't be worked out outside of that. But not to finish with punishment, but in mercy to restore them. Because God has a plan to save the whole world. And it's, it's critical that his people are part of it. They, has, they have to be part of it. So the plans that he has for them include exile, but then release. And he announces it in advance. So what about us, the prophets and us? Now, I've heard this illustration. I didn't come up with this, but I've heard it. And I think it's helpful. When we read the prophets, there's three contexts that we need to think about. The first is the immediate one. So the day that the prophet was writing to, the people that were receiving his words as sermons that were then written down. So what did it mean to the people who received them in the first place? That's the near setting. But when I drive to Mafra, I look across to the mountains and if you looked at it without thinking too much about it, it just looks like a curtain of blue, doesn't it? Right? Fairly featureless. But I realise that some are nearer and some are further away. And what's in between? Well, there's mountain peaks and there's valleys. And so when the prophets speak about the future, that's things beyond their generation, beyond their situation. But there's also things that speak about the end. And so some of the, some, sometimes the prophets are speaking about things that are right now, still to come, and then ultimate, right at the end of all things. And it's a bit hard to work out how much of a valley there is between these things because it looks when you, when you see them all the detail seems to be compressed but as you read the prophets you've got to 
get a bit of a sense of, are they talking about what's happening right now? Is this a prophecy for some time in the future or is this a prophecy of the end? Now when we look at, when we look at the view from Mafra on a map, you get the near immediate and you get the future and you get the, you know, the mountains that look as though they're all compressed. Actually when you see them, they look, if you were to see them from the air, they, they look a lot further apart. Uh, so when you read the prophets, you've got to keep that in mind. Are they ta- is this the situation as it's described now? Is this something for the future? Is this something that relates to the end? But then we need to also bear in mind that when Jesus preached to his disciples, he said that he was the fulfilment of prophecy. Right, and so this is what he said to them when he met with his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead in the upper room. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So we need God's help to help us understand the scriptures. So when we read the prophets, we understand that Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them, they're speaking about things that happened in their day that they needed to address. But there are aspects of what they were talking about that find their fulfilment in Jesus. And there are some things that they're talking about that find their ultimate fulfilment on the last day, the day of the Lord. So we've got those three horizons that we need to be thinking about. But Jesus says that the prophets are about him. In fact, the whole Old Testament is about Jesus. And so on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, um, Peter had a task to, uh, to preach to the assembled crowd there. They'd, they'd heard the, uh, the sound of a rushing wind and they saw flame, tongues of fire above these people. They wondered what was going on and so Peter explains it to them in the first Christian sermon. And this is what he says. Now look at this because this is very important. So in Acts chapter 2, Peter says this, the the tongue speaking. People are saying they're drunk, they've gone nuts, what's going on here? Peter says, no, the pubs aren't even open. Uh, He says, I'm going to tell you what's happening. And so he, he puts it in the setting of Bible history. He says this... It was what this, what we're seeing, is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapour of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's saying what Joel said has come to pass. But what did Joel say? This is what he said. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now the interesting thing, and the rest of the quote is fairly similar, but Peter manipulates somewhat what Joel said. So if you look at the two together, Joel says it shall come to pass afterward. Peter says this is what was uttered through Joel in the last days. So what was afterwards to Joel, middle distance, thinking about the mountains and the hills, right, What was afterward to Joel, Peter says, we're in it. And Peter calls it not afterwards, but the last days. You still with me? 
Someone said to me the other day, with all that's going on in Ukraine and everything else, she said, Steve, do you think we're in the last days? And I said, of course. Because we've been in the last days since the day of Pentecost, according to Peter. The last days does not refer to this magical little period of time immediately before the Lord Jesus returns. It means the entire era between the resurrection of Jesus and his return. All of it is the last days. Look at it, it says it right there. I'm not making this up, this is in the Bible. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. Many times in various ways the prophet spoke to us in the past, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. So we've been in the last days since the days of the apostles. Is that clear? Right? So we are living in a period that was spoken of by the prophets, but we're waiting for the ultimate thing that they spoke of, the day of the Lord, to come about. And that'll be when Jesus comes back and makes everything new. Now, there's not long to go, but just a couple more perspectives. Now, Graham Goldsworth is an Australian writer and scholar that I find very helpful. And he has this to say. He says there's three dimensions of prophetic fulfilment. The first of them is this. The gospel, that's the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the reign of the Lord Jesus, the gospel, is the work of Christ for us. In Jesus, the end of the world has come on our behalf. So the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns, you could call that judgment day, when God weighs everyone. Everyone's going to meet God on that day, and for some, it will be a day of reward, and for others, it will be a day of punishment. Okay, It's going to be salvation and judgment. Jesus took on his shoulders the judgment of everyone who believes in him. He took the last day into the present. Does that make sense? Jesus took the penalty of the last day and bore it on the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, what happened? Oh, the sky went dark and there was an earthquake. The sorts of things that Joel said would happen on the day of the Lord. Some of them happened the day that Jesus went to the cross. What was going on? Jesus was bearing in his body on the cross God's wrath at sin. He has taken the wrath of God on the last day and borne it for you and me. That's, what, that's the significance of it. So the, the prophets were looking ahead to that and that's why Jesus said to the disciples, you should have known this, it's in the prophets. They hadn't worked out that Jesus was the suffering servant. They wanted a king. They didn't want a suffering king. They just wanted a king. So the first dimension of prophetic fulfilment is that in Christ, what the prophets were looking ahead to without knowing when it was going to take place, the verdict of the last day has been brought into the present. So on the last day, when you meet God, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the verdict of the last day will be justified, which means not guilty. But if you meet God on the last day without putting your trust in Jesus, the verdict on the last day will be, I never knew you. And you'll stand condemned. So Jesus has borne in his body the punishment that was due us all. The last day's been brought into the present. So the gospel is the work of Christ for us. The fruit of the gospel is the work of Christ in us. So the Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost and everybody who puts their trust in Jesus is given the gift of the Spirit. Now that was prophesied by the prophets as well they looked ahead to a time when everyone would receive the holy spirit and so that's the kingdom of christ 
uh, applied to us, us believers, by the Spirit. And so the Spirit does his work in us and produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control, doesn't he? Right? Now they're all the characteristics of the eternal kingdom of God. And they're brought into the present through the ministry of the Spirit in people like you and me. So Jesus has borne the penalty of the last day and he's bringing the privileges of the eternal state into the present. The things that the prophets looked ahead to. But then the third dimension, says Goldsworthy, is this. The consummation of the gospel is the work of Christ with us. At his return, everything that has happened in Christ for us, the work among God's people of his work by the Spirit, that'll be universal. So one day, what's happened in you and me, personally, will be across the board for the whole cosmos. So if you don't get your head around that, listen to this. Isaiah 11 verse 9, this is what the prophets looked ahead to. Isaiah says there's going to come a day when the earth shall be full of the knowledge of, of, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right. So in other words, the creation is going to be made beautiful again. At the moment we live in a groaning creation. But Isaiah looks ahead to a day when the whole earth is going to be full of the glory of God. In Ephesians, Paul says that's partially happened. He says all things in heaven and on earth will be united in him who, fulfill, who fills all in all. Right? So the blessing of the eternal state has been brought into the present because 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So the prophets addressed their situation, but they saw to the future and then the end. Some of the things that the prophets saw about the end are the privileges of us who've come to Christ now. We share in the benefits of the fruit of the Spirit and what God has done in my heart, circumcising it, making it new and yours too, I trust, um, he's going to do for the whole cosmos one day when he restores everything. And that's a glorious future, is it not? So, true prophecy... No, let's just stop there. Is that, look, I've just got a couple more. Is, is, how are we going with that so far? Right? The prophets prophesied in their day. They spoke of things to come. But mainly they addressed their audiences. So anybody who thinks that prophecy is always future is misreading it. They spoke to their audience about things that they needed to attend to then. But they did look to a situation where God was going to intervene to create a people for himself and to restore all things to himself. And some of those privileges have become ours in Christ now and they'll be completely ours when Christ returns and makes everything new. But what he's done in the heart, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What he's done, what he started there, he's going to do universally when Jesus returns. Got any thoughts on that or any questions? Think about it. We'll get back to this true prophecy what does it mean because Joel saw ahead to a day when all God's people would prophesy so are you a prophet well I think you are or you could be Revelation 19.10 I think this is the definition of New Testament prophecy so uh, we're going to preach through a revelation next year God willing um, so we read in Revelation 19.10 I fell at his feet to worship him this is an angel so John falls at this angel's feet to worship him but the angel said to John you must not do that I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy 
So what's a testimony? What is it? If you go to court and give a testimony, what are you doing? Yeah, evidence. This is what I've seen, this is what I've heard, this is what I've come to believe. That's testimony. Have you heard, seen and come to believe things about Jesus? Can you tell about that? If you can, you're a prophet. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So when you tell someone else about Jesus, you've become a prophet. Because that's what it's about. Back in the Old Testament... um, Um, Miriam and Aaron came to Moses and complained to him. They said, you know, you, who do you think you are? And, um, and, and the subject was prophecy. And Moses said, I wish that all God's people were prophets. And so Joel says what Moses wished for is going to happen one day. And Peter says it has happened. What Joel said was coming later, Peter says, is happening now. This is the last days. We're in the last era that the prophets spoke about. All we're waiting for now is for Jesus to return for the last day. So we're in the last days, we're waiting for the last day. But according to Revelation 19, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So in other words, telling what, you, what you've seen, what you've heard, what you've come to believe about Jesus, that's prophecy. Um, Acts 20, 26 to 27, Paul says to the Ephesian elders, Therefore I testify to you, this day that I am innocent of the blood of all for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God so that's true prophecy saying telling everything even the bits that you don't want to, other people don't want to hear right um, so prophecy just yep it, it means telling what you know about Jesus according to the revealed mind of God in scripture so there we go that's an introduction to the prophets um, so I'm a prophet uh, yeah, but be a good one, Pat. <laughs> it's the testimony of Jesus. It's not, you know, like, um, yeah. But how much do you need to know before you can start? Or do, you, do, you have, do you have to wait until you know everything? Because that would disqualify us all, right? If you talk about what you've seen and heard and come to believe, you're on safe ground. And that's what prophecy is in a New Testament setting. Um, so don't, don't wait till you know it, everything. Know everything before you start telling people about Jesus, because uh, you, you'll never get around to it. But anyway, but don't let. It, but uh, but please read the prophets. <laughs> now, like I say, I'll write this. I, I haven't got the notes for this all done yet, but I'll get those done during the week, and I'll send them out, and I'll send the PowerPoint as well, and hopefully that will prove somewhat helpful. Right. Um, so there we go. And if you haven't done it yet, go home and memorise the, the minor ones. Because <laughs> you will meet Joel one day. Yeah. I, I was, t- was going to say in church today too, I'll tell you another thing that will do everybody a lot of good. Sit down and read Isaiah 40 to 55. See if you can get it done in one go. I did it during the week and it did me good. Um, just to hold the whole big chunk of it together. Um, it's extraordinary. Um, so I recommend it. See if you can just carve out a couple of hours and read read the lot and then memorise the prophets. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Is that enough? What's that? Yeah, something like that, but I probably won't mark it. So, yeah. yeah, what about we say a prayer? 
Loving Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's a big word and a powerful word. And we thank you that in your mercy you've given us things that are crystal clear. Uh, but we thank you too that you've given us things that really do require that we think hard and, and, uh, and challenge us deeply. So please help us to be uh, faithful readers, um, people that accept those challenges of, uh, of reading well. And we pray that you would open up the prophets to us and make them live to us so that we would understand their message as being a message for these the last days that we're, we're currently living in. Help us to be faithful. Help us to endure until the great day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus returns and makes everything new. But in the meantime, help us to live out what it means to, uh, to be spirit-filled people, uh, new creation people as we wait for Jesus to return. So please help us to live out our, our prophetic task, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.